Good morning. It is seven minutes after 11 o'clock. Jennifer Bukowski with us. Uh, brilliant criminal defense attorney and uh, political activist. And uh, coming up, uh, Kamala Harris trying to define her vice presidency. Well, I can define it. Loser. Uh, maybe that's not enough. <laughs> well, she's got the Washington Post last week coming after her in a front page story. And then yesterday, this New York Times article. Can I just read you a quick excerpt from this? It says, now with Mr. Biden appearing all but certain to run again, the concern over Ms. Harris has shifted to whether she will be a political liability for the ticket. Given that Mr. Biden is is 80, is already the oldest president in American history, Republicans would most likely make Ms. Harris, who is 58, a, a prime attack line, arguing that a vote for Mr. Biden may in fact be a vote to put her in the Oval Office. That will be, in my opinion, one of the most hard-hitting arguments against Biden, said John Morgan, a prominent fundraiser for Democrats, including Mr. Biden, and a former Florida finance chairman for President Bill Clinton. It doesn't take a genius to say, look, with his age, we really have to think about this. So far, he said she has not distinguished herself. It goes on and on and on. It goes on to, quote, hearsay from Hillary Clinton that she is not cut out for the job. So they are coming after her, and I can't tell if they're wanting to get her off the ticket or now or if they just want to neutralize her going forward. But as I mentioned before, Michael Cahaley at the Republican National Lawyers Association annual meeting last summer said that the most loyal demographic that the Democrats have is black female voters. If they don't give her her turn and her shot at this, they will not show up and vote for the Democrats in the general election. So you so think they're between a rock and a hard place? They're, both parties are in quite a pickle here. With you know, many people, Biden's approval rating and the number of Democrats that wanted to run again is quite low. And uh, the number of people that would be upset, this is a big poll that just came out, if he won again is quite high. And uh, then they have a vice president who's problematic. Trump never had that problem, at least. Like, everyone was fine with Pence until the very end when Trump went after him. But uh, this is quite interesting because then at the top, we just talked about two articles where major donor groups are hoping this is not Trump, basically, and looking to support alternates to Trump. Is this going to be a very interesting? It's going to be a very interesting election cycle. Uh, and interesting, and compounding that is that it's already started. Yeah, that, wow. that was hitting me last night when I put you know three articles on my list of topics today, all about 2024. It's just that's what's getting generated now in the news and the newspapers. We have I also two. A lot of liberal sources this time <laughs> compared to usual in my topic list. I've got four New York Times articles and a Slate article. We Jeez. have. We have two libertarian candidates who have already formally thrown their hat in the ring. Uh, Donald Trump is, has, uh, of course, formally thrown his hat in the ring. Uh, Joe Biden is just about to. Uh, so I think that, you know, the race is on and it's going to start earlier than it usually does. Mechanically, it starts right after the midterms anyway. But now uh, we've got more people declaring earlier than we ever have before. And so for two years, uh, we're going to get uh, just nonstop slammed uh, 
uh, with politicians uh, declaring they're going to run. Uh, let's move on to, to what is really in your wheelhouse, and that is criminal defense. Alex Murdaugh, uh, I think he's in trouble. Uh, they, you know, he had an alibi that he was with. I think it was his mother who was suffering from Alzheimer's. But they've got a video from his son's phone where he's clearly heard talking uh, shortly before his son and his wife were murdered, uh, putting him at the scene. Now the prosecution wants to introduce, uh, and, and is introducing, the judge said it, they could, uh, this information about him embezzling millions of dollars from clients and other attorneys. And they're trying to, I guess, make the connection that that's the reason that he decided to go out and murder his son and his wife. But I don't think they're, they've got any more than correlation. I don't think they have causation. I don't think they have any indication of this. And I think it paints him in a bad light that uh, would perhaps create an appeal based on the verdict. What do you think? I think you're right. This has been an objected to, this financial crimes evidence, because he's only charged in this trial with the two murders he's and related things to the two murders he's not charged with the financial crimes in this case he is charged with some things in a separate case and so ordinarily uh, you're able to get a ruling that you can only you can't use bad acts evidence against someone to just paint them as a bad person so you should convict them because they're a bad person you have to focus on what they're charged with and prove those things but the prosecution here is trying to make a connection that, look, it was all coming to a head that you just did this as a delay tactic to uh, get sympathy, I guess, so that uh, all the financial stuff that was about to come out about him, he would buy himself more time. But I think that is a bit of a stretch. And really, the prosecution is also wanting to show he's a liar and uh you know, not a believable person, so don't listen to whatever he has to say because he's stealing all kinds of money from his associates, you know. That's, and the maid, you know, and all these other things. And I think that, uh, I think that they want that in to paint him as a bad person. And you're right, it could create an appealable issue. Now this judge had offers of proof for, you know, hours and hours where you've already seen the testimony that these people will be giving to the jury now if you were watching court TV because, they had, you know, hearings outside the presence of the jury where these witnesses were called. And uh, I don't think the prosecution needs this evidence, but they certainly want to get this evidence in. And if on appeal, it would go to, like, did the judge abuse his discretion? And I don't know that they'll be able to make that threshold, but we shall see. And uh, I don't think they need it because all of the evidence puts him at the scene. You know, do you have a video of the son putting on Snapchat an hour before where his dad's in a different outfit. You've got all these texts showing that, like, he lured the mom, the wife, and the son basically out to this country house that they have. <clears throat> and uh, they look, it's so sad because it looks like, oh, they're getting along, and you have a witness talking about hearing both parents in the background at the dog kennels, which Alex Murdoch denies going to. And uh, then you have the cell phone evidence showing you know, how many steps they took, where they were, the text they read and they didn't read, the son and the wife both stopped 
doing anything on their phones at a certain time, although it looks like someone picked up the wife's phone a little bit after she had never logged in again, and it tried to, like, facial recognize the person picking up the phone. It did not open. So that implies that, you know, the killer picked up the phone. But even yesterday, they had the the helper for the mom with dementia that's supposedly the alibi. And this genius Alex Murda, who is also on drugs, is uh, what his attorney had said before, had a terrible drug habit, said if anyone asked, I was here 30 to 40 minutes, and he wasn't there that long. Yeah. What uh, an idiot. <laughs> you know, as I go through all this, um, one of the other things, by the way, an observation, how is it that they're bringing that in when he hasn't been found guilty of uh, embezzlement? It's just an well, allegation. It's an assertion. The charges are filed, but he's not gone to trial. They're bringing it in for the purpose of motive. Yeah, but can you do that when somebody's not necessarily guilty yet? Yeah, if it goes to motive. All right. But I don't know that this is, like, a clear enough motive. That's the thing. It's It would be very clear if there were life insurance policies on the wife and the son. And I've wondered to myself, I've... This guy's on drugs and just acting, you know, he's out there. Maybe he thought he had life insurance. I don't know if there's been no evidence of that, but if there were life insurance, that would be very obvious that that's a motive, right? When yeah. he's having all these financial problems, but he didn't have any life insurance on his wife and son. That seems strange. Don't most people have life insurance if they're attorneys and they have assets and things like that? Uh, it's kind of odd. Yeah, um, there's all kinds of peculiarities here um, with regard to this trial, and I really think they're going to have a problem um, with an appeal. I think it's 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 almost well. It's almost one thing that they'll look at on appeal, though, Gary, is okay. That aside, what would the case look like? And the evidence is so strong against Alex Murdoch now that. I don't think that they could show it was a prejudicial error. Even if the court, appellate court agreed with the defense that it was an error to let that in, they can look at, you know, the huge pile of evidence implicating his guilt and say it wouldn't have changed the outcome and uphold it anyway. It'll be, uh, it, it'll, it'll be well, interesting to watch. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've learned from you is not to talk to law enforcement without my attorney present. Yeah, and, and they this all guy's think an attorney. Should. This guy is an attorney, and he's running his mouth, and that's how they're getting him. Like, if he didn't say anything, he wouldn't have said I was never at the kennel. You know, so maybe he would have had wiggle room in his alibi, right? Uh, so that's the problem here that he's facing. It's like a lot of times prosecutors say, the next best thing to evidence is a provable lie. Well, this is a very relevant provable lie if he's at the very dog kennels that he denied going to, where the bodies are found. Yeah, I'm telling you right now, uh, I don't care what, you know, how it makes me look. If I ever get, you know, in, in, a, in a horrible situation like that, first thing I'm going to do is say, wait till Jennifer gets here. Yeah, keep for, ask for an attorney and keep your mouth shut until you talk to one, even if you're innocent, especially if you're innocent. That's what I say. Yeah, because you can say the right thing. if you're guilty, too. Because, <laughs> yeah, if you're But guilty, you can say the right thing the wrong way and be in trouble. Oh, definitely. Or so, they're looking at your demeanor or any kind of offhand remarks you're making, and you're not going to be thinking clearly. 
for remembering but, everything precisely, you know, because all kinds of emotions will be going on in your head and the adrenaline. And so you could make a mistake as to what you remember and like look back at your phone or whatever later and be like, oh, no, it was this or that. But now you look like a liar. So prove that you were lying to them with your phone. Don't don't police think you're guilty when you say, look, uh, I'm not going to talk till I get my attorney here. They might. Yeah, they could. But that's not allowed to be commented on at trial. Cases will get overturned if the prosecutor comments on the fact that the defendant refused to talk. So they have to be very careful bringing that up. So it may, may make the law enforcement look suspicious, but you can get an attorney involved and then communicate through that attorney any exculpatory evidence and any information you may have that could lead to the real killers. But that's another reason they're able to get this motive now that I... I'm talking about this, that's the other hook that they got to get the judge to allow this in is the first thing he does when he calls 911 or when he's talking to the cops is like, well, there's this boat case that, you know, some people are mad about. So he's automatically throwing that in there as like trying to cast shade on the people that are upset about his son killing uh, Mallory Beach, who is the girl that died in the boating accident and trying to make them into suspects. And so I think that was another connection that they use to show that this stuff is relevant and should come in. All right, coming up, a single judge could outlaw the abortion pill nationwide next week. As a libertarian, I'm really up in the air about this because I'm pro-life. Well, we'll kick it around with Jennifer in just a couple of minutes on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is... uh, 24 minutes after 11. Jennifer Bukowski is with us. Uh, Brian, did you get the uh, the uh, uh, safety on an airplane audio? I did not. No, sir. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm not going to play that for you next. Uh, Jennifer Bukowski is with us, and uh, we got a couple more things to get to. A single judge could outlaw the abortion pill nationwide next week. As a libertarian who is pro-life... Uh, I'm opposed to getting involved in uh, the government's, you know, approval of pharmaceuticals. At the same time, I'm opposed to abortion. So I'm having a hard time with this. Jennifer, tell me what's going on. Yeah, this is a case, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the FDA. And I actually know two of the lead attorneys on this case are Josh Holly's wife, Erin Holly. And Julie Blake, who until recently worked um, in the Solicitor General's office uh, for the Missouri Attorney General. And they had this ongoing challenge to the approval that the FDA did of the abortion pills. That it was not, it didn't go through the proper channels when it got rushed through and approved in 2000. But then this lawsuit came about after in 2021, under first the guys at the, you know, the pandemic, and then after Roe got overturned, now the FDA is saying that providers can mail these abortion drugs anywhere in the country, basically, including to states that don't allow abortion. So under this backdrop, we also have Chris Kobach, the Kansas Attorney General, signing a letter yesterday to Walgreens uh, warning them that this is not uh, okay to do in his state. And uh, the new Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, was the lead author of a letter signed, joined with 20 other Attorneys General saying a similar thing a few weeks ago about, look, 
can't just mail abortion pills to our state. And so that's the next battle I see here is the abortion pill. And the FBI is pushed to say, look, you can mail these wherever you want. And people can take them at home. And then this lawsuit is pointing out that uh, according to the studies cited in the lawsuit, that these pills are not that safe, that you have all kinds of complications that result in people going to the hospital. And then they're told to lie about having a miscarriage and so that can lead to them having to have surgery later on and all kinds of uh, problems are cited in studies written about in that lawsuit but you have attorneys general paying attention to this as saying you know follow our state laws and this lawsuit that ostensibly if you backdate the approval date of this drug if you say that this shouldn't have been approved it's been around for 22 years though then yes, this judge in the forum shop down to Texas, I guess, could say that this abortion pill nationwide um, shouldn't have been approved by the FDA and they have to go back and reassess. So that's something to keep an eye on. Well, it's one I'm going to have to wrestle with uh, because uh, prohibition of anything uh, usually ends up uh, creating a black market and it's more deadly. True, we'll, yeah. We'll see. Um, all right, uh, the Republican, uh, the, the, the senator that holds the power to stop Republicans from blocking judges. They're talking about Dick Durbin in this New York Times op-ed. They're saying that these uh, blue laws where a Republican senator can say for, uh, about a judge in their state, they could basically put the kibosh on the judge getting uh, approved and appointed and um, confirmed by the Senate to the federal bench, they should do away with that tradition. Now, this is, to be fair, people were saying that we should do the same thing when Trump was in the White House, and there were Democrats that were stopping certain nominees from proceeding um, because they didn't approve them in their states. And uh, back then, oh, what was the word? Oh, that would be, you know, defying traditions, and they can't do that. Now the New York Times is calling for Dick Durbin to get rid of that rule and uh, no longer follow that procedure that the Senate has. If somebody is uh, nominated and uh, they're going through advice and consent and a senator from the state that this uh, nominee comes from objects, he can kill it. Uh, right, and they're saying that you shouldn't follow that anymore. It's just like a tradition it, and that it doesn't that it's not binding and you can over you don't have to follow that precedent anymore and you don't have to follow that blue slip veto process anymore you know every time the democrats advocate for uh getting rid of one of those things um and, and you know perfect example is the filibuster on, uh, on judicial nominees every time they do that it comes back to bite them in a couple of years Right. So you think that they would be more careful about it. And in fact, in a recent letter to colleagues reported by the Washington Post, Mr. Durbin urged both parties not to abuse the blue slip veto, hinting at changes ahead if Republicans do so. Isn't that interesting? So yeah. he's saying that that's possibly on the table if they keep killing, um, using the blue slip veto to stop extreme judges from getting on the bench. Yeah, Harry Reid started them off in the wrong direction, and they're continuing on. The end justifies the means for them. Jennifer Bukowski, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Bye-bye. All right, take care.
Uh, another topic she wanted to copy, uh, cover that we will is unhappy marriages. That's next. This is the Gary Nolan Show. It is uh, 1135. <clears throat> um, marriages, some are unhappy, some are not. But you might want to stay married even if you are unhappy. Um, I'll give you the uh, details on that. Also, uh, we have uh, Disney, uh, boycott Disney trends after Disney cartoon clip advocates for federal reparations claims Lincoln didn't free the slaves. Can't make this stuff up. Uh, that's what uh, Disney is proclaiming. Uh, we'll play a piece of that for you. But in the meantime, an unhappy marriage is better for your health than being single or divorced, according to a new study. People who live with a spouse are less likely to have high blood pressure, uh, high blood sugar, which can lead to type 2 diabetes, regardless of har how harmonious or acrimonious their relationship is. Experts believe couples influence each other's behavior, such as diet, as well as tending to have higher shared income, which can also lead to healthier eating. Uh, previous research had found marriage can lead to a host of health benefits, including a longer life, fewer strokes and heart attacks, uh, lower risk of depression, and healthier eating than those who are single. But researchers wanted to hone in on how being in a long-term relationship impacted on blood, uh, blood sugar levels which can be the result of factors including what we eat, hormones, and stress. They analyzed data on more than 3,300 adults, 50 to 89, from uh, the English Longitudinal Study of Aging. People were asked if they had a husband or wife or a partner with whom they lived. 76% of the participants found to be married or cohabitating. Asked questions to examine the level of strain and support within the relationship. The results were then analyzed alongside data gathered from blood samples taken every four years, which me measured average blood glucose levels. Experts at the University of Carleton, Ottawa, Canada said, <clears throat> along with the uh, uh, University of Luxembourg, that those who were married or cohabitating had blood sugar levels that average a fifth, 21%, lower than people who were single, divorced, or bereaved. The same held true for both men and women. Uh, the quality of the relationship didn't make a significant difference to the average levels of blood glucose, which they acknowledge was surprising in light of the previous findings, suggesting a supportive relationship is most beneficial. So if you're in a bad relationship, uh, you and the wife are constantly at odds, you and the wife are still better off staying together than getting a divorce. So, uh, unless you've got somebody on the side that you're ready to, you know, uh, have a relationship right away. But that, too, can be problematic because when the wife finds that out or the husband finds that out, all of your problems could end. Yeah, quite literally. Uh, so, there you go. Uh, I, I, that was one of Jennifer's topics. We didn't get to it. Boycott Disney is trending on Twitter after a clip from the new Proud Family reboot went viral showing a group of cartoon teens performing for their school. 
The characters blast the United States for having had slavery, institutionalized racism, and demands for reparations for black Americans. The viral song does not mention the civil rights movement of the 20th century. The performance begins with drumming and spoken word. Yeah. This country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. Tilled this land from sea to sea to sea. First there was rice, tobacco, sugar cane. Then Whitney did his thing and cotton became king. And we were its soldiers. Four million strong. Fighting for America's freedoms, even though we remained America's slaves. Built this country. The descendants of slaves continue to build this. Slaves built this country. And we, the descendants of slaves in America, have earned reparations for their suffering. And continue to earn reparations every moment we spend submerged in the system. Prejudice, racism, and white supremacy That America was founded with and still has not atoned for Slaves built this country Not only field hands, but carpenters, masons Blacksmiths, musicians Inventors built cities from Jamestown to New Orleans to Bannacan Washington, 40 acres and a mule We'll take the 40 acres, keep the mule We, we made, made your families rich From the southern plantation heirs To the northern bankers To the New England ship owners The founding fathers the Illuminati, the New World Order, slaves built this country. We had. Well, that gives you an idea. That's a Disney video, man. Have they gone crazy? Um, Eli Whitney did his thing, and Cotton became king. The song goes on to say, "And we were its soldiers, four million strong, fighting for America's freedoms, even though we remained America's slaves." The, the, the slaves built this country. The descendants of slaves continue to build it. Apparently, Brian, only blacks are working. Uh, yeah, they, apparently. Based on this, um, whites are not working. Slaves built this country. The descendants of slaves continue to build it. Slaves built this country. And we are the descendants of slaves in America, have earned reparations for their suffering, and continue to earn reparations every moment we spend submerged in a systemic prejudice, racism, and white supremacy. Well, um, first, there is no denying that slavery was bad. We acknowledge that. We don't have it today. We got rid of it by 1865. We look back at it historically as being really pretty ugly. But nobody alive today was born or lived in 1865. Uh, you got 150 uh, years or so, or more, uh, between when uh, the last slaves were freed and today. If you haven't managed to find a way to get on your feet after all that time, it is not my fault. And I didn't benefit from slavery. In fact, I personally didn't have any relatives here for at least another 40 years after slavery. Because my, uh, with the exception of my great-grandmother, who was Native American, uh, everybody uh, from my family came from overseas. So why should I be paying reparations? 
does Oprah Winfrey get a check for reparations? She's one of the wealthiest women in the entire country. How much is she entitled to? How are you going to decide who was here and who came after slavery ended? You got to do a lot of research to weed out that. But that's what Disney is pushing. And apparently the left, you know, they're all in on this. Everybody is a victim on the left. Everybody. I uh, I don't know what's happened to Disney. I remember when if there was a Disney program on TV, it was good for the whole family. It was apolitical. It was, you know, it, it was light. What was it? The what was that Volkswagen movie? Uh, the Love Bug or whatever. Herbie. Her, yeah. Uh, I mean, that was the that was the type of thing that Disney produced. Now they've gotten into this race thing and transgender thing, and every it, single movie they have made, they're rethinking whether or not it's appropriate for content. Oh, we can't show Pocahontas anymore. Some people may be offended by that. We're so sorry. If I had a kid, I wouldn't. I would not have anything Disney related. I really think that the marketplace ought to send them a message. Because this is just, this is just ugly, uh, and I'm I'm really disappointed that uh, that Disney has gone this direction. It just, it it just it it's just sad. I, I did you actually get that done? I did. Yeah, it's kind of long, but I uh, got it all out. Well, maybe we should take a break and then come we back can. and and uh, play this uh, airline security stuff. Let's do that. Uh, If you're thinking of taking a flight, we've got some tips for you on how to be safe on a plane. Coming up on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. Hey, before Glenn Beck gets on board, let's uh, give you some uh, airline safety. Uh, This is the Honest Pre-Flight Safety Briefing. Greetings from the cockpit. This is your captain speaking. Our AV system isn't working today, so we can't show you the $2 million safety video that an ad agency did for us. But since very little of what that video tells you will actually save your lives, I'm going to do it instead. The FAA says that 60% of you ignore the safety talk. Today, you'll hear the real safety talk you should have been given years ago. You don't want to miss this one. Here's the big thing to remember. If we crash or make an emergency landing, statistically speaking, 95% of you will survive. If it's a serious crash, 55% of you will survive. So if this plane is going down, concentrate, because your life may depend on some smart decisions. Keep in mind that 80% of accidents happen within the first three minutes and last eight minutes of the flight. So that's when it would be wise to keep your shoes on and put your laptops away and stay focused. The safest seats on this plane are the ones facing backward, like the ones the flight crew are seated in. No, that's not a coincidence. The next safest seats are over the wings, closest to the emergency exit. If you're not in one of those right now, that's a bummer. But here's what you can do to help ensure your survival. Look where the nearest exit is. 
Now count the rows between you and that exit. If the cabin was full of smoke or upside down, or full of smoke and upside down, how would you get to the exit? Take a moment to visualize yourself doing just that. Now, look at your seatbelt. I know you all know how to use it, but that's because nothing is making you lose your right now. It's common for people in emergency stress situations to try to open that thing by pressing a button that's not actually there, like the seatbelt on your car. So take a moment to imagine yourself lifting the flap in an emergency. In fact, do it now just to get used to the motion. Emergency evacuations on the runway are more common than crashes. In the event of something like an engine fire, we need to get you all off the plane in about 90 seconds. This means you need to leave your bags in the overhead bins and get off the plane in a quick and orderly way. Those bags will bring the evacuation to a virtual halt. My first officer and I will also be trying to get off this plane, and the last thing we want is to be cockpit blocked by your roll-on. Now you're probably well aware that there's a life jacket under your seat. Forget about it. They're less likely to save your life than those little airline pillows. Sure, there was the famous 2009 emergency water landing on the Hudson, but there were boats on hand immediately and no one actually needed a life vest. There was a flight that ditched in the Caribbean in 1970 where 40 lives were likely saved by the vest, but there was also one off the coast of Ethiopia in 1996 in which many passengers put them on too early and then couldn't get out of the flooded fuselage. To put it another way, if we replaced those life vests with a box of chocolates, it wouldn't alter your survival odds. Let's take a second to talk about those oxygen masks. Here's the thing. If we lose cabin pressure at a fairly low altitude, no big deal. You can breathe just fine. If we lose cabin pressure at cruising altitude, you can't. If that happens, here's what I'm required to do. I'm gonna push the nose of the plane into an emergency descent. That's gonna feel like a roller coaster drop and it's gonna scare the crap out of you, but it's not dangerous. I've practiced. Also, by law, I need to notify air traffic control as well as the airline. And I need to do all of that before I can get on the microphone and tell you what the hell is going on. So don't be surprised if you don't hear from me for a bit. I'm just doing my job and you're gonna be fine. For those of you who didn't manage to get your masks on in time, you'll probably pass out and then wake up in a minute or two when I get the plane to a lower altitude. You wanna know what the biggest danger is? that you won't get your frequent flyer points for this flight. Just kidding. Now the biggest danger is actually that your luggage or those duty-free bottles you purchased and put in the overhead compartment will fall out when you open it and hit someone on the head. There are actually several thousand reported injuries from this every year in the U.S. alone. By contrast, the FAA only reports 58 or so serious injuries from turbulence. So one could easily make the case that we should be handing out a helmet and skip the seatbelts. Another big risk is the drink cart. Seriously, it weighs over 100 kilos when fully loaded and every year passengers get their elbows and knees and feet broken when the drink carts slam into them. So keep your arms and legs tucked away. Why haven't the airlines put some safety padding on the drink cart? No idea. Seems pretty basic. Same goes for the spill-proof coffee and teapots and cups with lids. Every year, some poor passengers get hot coffee or tea in their crotch when there's a bit of turbulence. But until the airlines fix this, I'm afraid you're on your own. 
Now you're probably wondering, how can this bucket of bolts stay in the sky if we can't even get the AV system or the latch on your tray table to work properly? To be honest, we sometimes wonder that as well. But the stats speak for themselves. The actual risk of dying in a plane crash is about 1 in 11 million, according to the Harvard School of Public Health's 2006 study. So you are far more likely to be struck by lightning or killed by a shark. And it's certainly much safer than driving. Right after 9-11, many were scared to fly. 12 to 20 percent fewer people flew. But because more people made driving trips instead of flying, a German professor estimated that an extra 1,595 people died in car accidents in the year after a 9-11 just in the U.S. Just a little reminder that we'll probably keep the seatbelt sign on for nearly the entire flight because our flight crew doesn't like to be bothered in the galley and they definitely don't like trying to squeeze by you in the aisles. Please sit back and relax while we take forever to serve you a drink and barely edible meal and then leave the tray on your table, making it nearly impossible for you to squeeze out of the chair and get to the toilet. All right, there you go. Some uh, some tips huh, on flying. Uh, and, uh, well, it was both informative and entertaining. I, I thought it was kind of... Uh Kind of a neat piece. All right. Uh, anyway, so that's that. Coming up, uh, we got Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, uh, Randy Tobler is going to be on board. Uh, and, of course, uh, your conversations as well. Always look forward to having you with us. Uh, tomorrow, we've got uh, the Attorney General. Uh, he is going to be on board. Secretary uh, of State. Secretary of State, I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, the Epic Times uh, with their hottest story of the week. So we've got all that coming on board. Remember, if you want to contact me uh, at any time, you send me a message, just go to GaryNolan.com. I can get the uh, message whether I'm home or in the studio, because that's the way I fixed it. Uh, and remember, you don't have to sign up for it. There are no cookies. Uh, no personal data gets shared with anyone, because that's the way I roll. Yeah, and if you have complaints, just go to GaryNolan.com and send it there. Yeah, that's Because I get enough of the uh, complaints here. Uh, all you get is the money. Yeah, pretty Every much, time. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, not sure. I'm not sure I'm getting a good deal here. Uh, but anyway, I'll so that's I'll take care what, of you. Huh? I'll take care of you. Trust me on this. Well, it's been 10 years. I haven't gotten a dime. No, I've sent you one. I've sent you several, as a matter of fact. Yeah. You know, what you did is you, you probably sent me one of those invisible sculptures. That's sculptures. what it is, yes. yes. <laughs> That's a long story. We've got to run. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.